So welcome to another episode of Sokka's Is That So. I am speaking to uh, a very requested guest. His name is Christian, and he is the CEO and founder of Audio Mob. If you haven't heard of Audio Mob, you will be hearing about them very soon, I'm sure. Welcome to the show, Christian. Thanks. Thanks for uh, inviting me. No, it's really, really good to be here. Looking forward to uh, to the chat. Fantastic. So let's dive straight into it, man. We'll get into your background and all cool. that stuff later on. But um, currently, your company has been flying high. You know, you've raised, you're expanding internationally. What what does it look like from your purview as the CEO of Audio Mob when you look at the current sort of macro environment and the investing sort of startup landscape? What are kind of your thoughts at the current environment right now? So current thoughts are it's it's visibly I can see visibly right with investors on the news and whatnot that um it is it is a, a worrying landscape to be navigating in but it's no more worrying than uh 2020 um and you know uh when we went went out of the pandemic and we started you know raising again and things like that and uh we we made it you know very very apparent that you know 2020 it was not a normal year to raise a company and yet we expanded and 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 grew and whatnot and um we're just going to see exactly the same thing the times are going to be a bit harder but it's just all about the execution so am i worried about the state of the world no am i cautious and is it adapting the way that we operate absolutely um and it's just making sure that you know no matter what we see that we prepare for it we have a plan um even for the things that we don't think are going to happen that might happen uh, we have a plan for that as well so yeah cautious but uh but but not worried so tell me about how you actually raised during a pandemic, man. That's absolutely mind-boggling to me because usually raising involves a lot of handshaking, you know, kissing babies, all that good stuff, right? <laughs> but raising during a pandemic is networking with people you've never met in person. What was that like? And I mean, what advice do you have for people that are trying to do that digitally instead of face-to-face? -face? So the whole idea of building rapport in person, it's easier, just like it's easier to close a sales deal by taking someone out to dinner. The real, real sale, the real sales skill is to figure out how to do that online, right? And um, from what I've seen and what I found out, you can only build so much rapport by, you know, the way that you present yourself and the credibility that you have for your experience on a call. It really all, it's all about the execution of a plan and how you tell that plan. And of course, if you're, you know, a bit later and you've had revenue and whatnot, the uh, the performance against what you forecasted, just having all of those things in a very, very clear plan, because the best way of, uh, of building a rapport outside of, you know, the obvious, right, the way that you talk to a client, um, uh, you know, converse with them, etc, keep them staying, all, all, that, all that kind of stuff is um, proving that you have value and that you can execute a plan that is pretty much it and um when we were raising in the uh, in the pandemic it was pretty pretty hard <laughs> um you know we raised our first million dollars uh, just before the pandemic in january and then we had to raise another million dollars for like nine months throughout the pandemic and um i mentioned like you know i i'm prepared to if there's a complete downturn to go into pandemic fundraising mode which is raising small pockets of money constantly from angels you get enough enough angels then you get vcs and bigger angels coming in it's just very small and very constant um the vcs will completely shut down in times of um, economic turmoil um some of them will still you know entertain a potential investment 
but you are literally talking about like a 400% increase in the amount of time it will take to get through due diligence and all that stuff. So um, it was really just, you know, relying on the angels then building up a bigger, bigger roster of angels and, and raising in small pockets over a longer period of time. It is very, very difficult to raise in these circumstances in this method, but it is a way that has worked for, for, for uh, myself and, and Wilfred at least. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in terms of how you spent your time during that period, because you're building a product, you're also trying to sell, you're also trying to get investors on board. How has your time or schedule changed when you were in sort of fundraising mode and versus now? Is it 80% of your time focused on employees and HR or like how do you kind of divvy up your time uh, before and actually currently at the moment? So I'd say like during the series A, Wilfred became the uh, the kind of the temporary interim CEO. And I literally just raised, I was just talking to VCs um, all day long, uh, doing due diligence and all, all, all that good stuff. And I was occasionally like dipping in when there was a key deal, but I was like 5% of my time. Um, now it's a case of figuring out, because, you know, the deals that we're talking about, like back a year ago, it, you know, a hundred K deal that we, that we closed in, what was it? We closed it in April to be executed in June. That was a Pamper PNG deal at that point in time. It was the biggest deal we ever did. And we're like, okay, we're a six figure business. We probably probably raise a series A now. Cause we're going to be a million dollar business by the end of this year, at least. And that's what happened. But mm-hmm. even when we were raising there and the efforts that we took to pivot to ensure that I could raise the round with Wilfred, who of the $14 million, um, he specifically got in three, which was really impressive in in itself. Um, It's a difference between, because back back then we're like, yeah, okay, 100K is a good deal. We can raise off the back of this, but this isn't a million dollar deal. It isn't a $10 million deal. And these are the deals that we're now looking at right now. And it's a case of, all right, we've got money in the bank. 10 million would be great, great to raise right now. Um, uh, an extra couple of million would be great, but you know, there, there, there's a minimum target. And it's constantly measuring the opportunity cost of progressing a eight-figure deal versus in a time of economic peril, going after, you know, extra money. Because to be honest, most founders that I know, they are always raising. Even when you're not raising and you're talking to investors, you're actually raising because you don't want to screw up that investor update call, right? So um the way that I think about these things now is that I'm much more sensitive in terms of whether I actually need to raise because there is, even though it's a times of economic apparel, I know that, you know, that there is money out there that, that we could raise from, but is it worth, you know, impacting a deal if I have to take weeks out in order to, you know, do the race. So that's something that I'm thinking about. And there's obviously the caveat to that, that there's much more people in the company. We're just under 40 people when we were 12 at the beginning of the year. So, you know, people need to have to be supported and to be managed. And it isn't a case that, you know, Wolfrey could be uh, just the interim CEO, why I got and raised that just would not work. Um, so there is a, a much more leveled um, waiting between my management of people, the key deals and the fundraising. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, there's like $290 billion of dry powder out there amongst VCs. So you're right, there isn't mm-hmm. a capital out there. But you know, I guess VCs are waiting in the winds to see how the economy plays out with rising interest rates and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's a very interesting time. But speaking to one of the things you mentioned, you've been hiring like crazy. You've gone from 12 to 40 people. That's like more teams, more ways of thinking. Like what's it been like managing a bigger company and how, how has that changed the way you run things? Do you kind of outsource more? Do you, how, how, how have you run your company as you expand and, and grow in terms of your headcount? 
So that's a really, really good question. And um, one of the things that I constantly think about, and one of my mentors has been telling me this uh, since I was like 19, since she started, her name's Suzanne Parks, is that the best leaders, they grow people, they get, they're good at growing people that are bigger than themselves. What I mean by this is, you know, I'm a, I'm a 30 year old CEO, right? I don't have 15, 20 years of experience in a very specific thing. However, when it comes to the way that you motivate, direct and invest in a specific candidate that um, uh, is, is, is obviously willing and invested to improve themselves, um, that, that is something that I'm constantly um, improving on and, and getting advice as to how to be you know, the best kind of CEO that can do that. And the reason that I mentioned this point is that we are getting in very, very experienced people that are specialists in, you know, business development and customer success and operations and, you know, financial controlling and people and all, and all, and all this good stuff. And um, the idea is that I am now, I am now not involved in like the very, very small minutiae of deals, like, you know, 5K deals, 10K deals, things like that. It's like eight figure deals, figuring out which um, directors uh, we're going to hire and then developing them in order to manage their division at Audiomob in the best way possible, where I become irrelevant and don't even have to be there. And that is a very, very different way of managing a company. When we're 12 people and you're scrappy and it's getting involved in everything, now there needs to be, you know, a lot more process and a lot more mature structures that is representative of a company that can accept an eight-figure deal rather than multiple six-figure deals to make a seven-figure ARR company. It's it's completely different. And it's, you know, really exciting to kind of skill up in that area because it's it's very, very different to um to, to pre-series A, to be honest. Absolutely. I worked at, at startups in like pre-seed and seed, and I've also worked at large sort of multi-billion dollar conglomerates in tech. And it's such a different way of working. You know, in startups, you can be scrappy, use Google Docs, like, hey, have a meeting and a decision within like three hours. And then you get to these corporations and it's like, there's five decision makers, there's six committees you need to convince. You know, it's like a <laughs> bureaucracy almost at times. How, how do you think you're yeah. going to sort of, uh, balance the two things out where you need the processes in place in order to be professional and get those eight-figure deals you mentioned, but at the same time, not introduce undue bureaucracy that's going to slow you down because obviously your competitors are out there and you know it's heating up. So how do you kind of manage the freedom versus bureaucracy topic? So it's all about making sure that we follow the processes that are needed to ensure that there is... Um, minimal risk or less substantially less risk and not doing so it's things as simple as you know if you share a password on slack right um just say oh here's a password to this like data center or whatever it is and then you know don't, don't get me wrong we haven't had a hack yet but if we were to have one and someone gets into the into slack and then they can access all of our data so no we use things like a uh what was it one password so to share a password it's like it's all these little things where it's like it's a, it's a very, very small step to ensure that there is um, a more security at the company. That's just one of many, many examples, right? So some of these things that are added, I mean, don't get me wrong, like everyone enjoys being scrapping, getting involved in everything. But um, when it comes to, you know, maturing as a, as a CEO, as a director or whatever it is in terms of building an organization, these are things that just have to happen or you will not get those $8 deals because you're going to have too many fires that you're fighting, which is a segue into the next pro pro uh, point, which is um, 
there's three main things that um, are required to work at Audio Mob, and especially to be a director at one, which is you've got to be very good at concentrating on the uh, on the short, medium term objectives, right? Whether it's getting revenue, building a product, etc. Then you've got the medium to long term objectives, which is creating the framework that improves how you are doing your short and medium term objectives. So if you're concentrating on like, I don't know, getting an insertion order, like a advertising campaign, right? That's the short term goal. The medium long term goal is, you know, how is that IO, uh, you know, being housed? What is the strategic implications of the kind of vertical that you're going after? How is this communicated with the team? How is this reported so you can see what the conversion rates are in terms of your amount of outreach? Like it's all of these like things that are needed to project how you're going to work in the future. So doing that ideation, that strategy while, um, you know, concentrating on the short term, those are the two, those are two key things. But the third thing is doing that with a, um, a really positive, firm, emotional temperament. Because at a startup, you are going to get fires left, right, and center. Now, you Google Audio Mob. We are a company that's doing really well. We've got lots of clients. So we're growing through the moon in triple digits, et cetera. But, you know, with more money, there's more problems and more people because there's just fires everywhere from, you know, what's happening in, in Ukraine and Europe. Now it's affecting the exchange rate and how that's affecting, you know, potential revenues or, um, for instance, um, the kind of game developers that we can or can't interact with. There are just constant macroeconomic factors that will... Um, make you have to adapt how you're doing work and dealing with that with a really strong emotional temperament makes the other two tasks that I'm or objects that I mentioned, the short and medium term piece much easier to deal with. So those are the three main areas that directors um, uh, need to, uh, to, to, to be at audio mob. And it's something that we test for. And um, yeah, the, the, these are the key things that are needed to make sure that we're like not getting too bureaucratic and that um, we can actually adapt quickly but while obviously you know <laughs> making sure that we've got a good foundation in place absolutely i love the insertion of the biggie lyrics more money more problems that's great I'm gonna <laughs> clip that out and make it to like a youtube short or something but uh in terms of like uh, what you mentioned you know working in the machine versus working on the machine i had a mentor that kind of delineated between those two, which is in the machine day to day, you know, getting those quarterly results, but then working on the machine, which is like ways of working and frameworks and things of that nature. So it's kind of a great way to, to delineate between the two. Uh, another part that comes I'm stealing from, that quote, by the way, that's cool. <laughs> in the machine, on the machine, as long as you yeah, yeah, I'm, saying, royalties, yeah. I'm good then. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No problem. <laughs> um, we actually met in New York City when you came over as part mm. of the consulate expansion. And I wanted to get yeah. your thoughts on uh, raising from American investors and then raising from the UK ecosystem. Cause I lived in London for a long time and moved back to the U S just recently. And I've noticed a few differences, but I wanted to get your thoughts on the sort of U S ecosystem way of raising versus the UK. Did you notice anything different or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I guess the way that I, I raise and the way that I frame the story of audio mob is representative of the end vision, which is IPO and expand all of our different products in our R&D lab, making an alphabet soup, if you will, because you've got the audio mob uh, as the parent and you've got all of these different companies that I think are going to be worth uh, substantial amounts of money post IPO. Now, to every time a tech startup thinks of IPO, they think listing in the US, right? There is more public money there. There is more VC money, private equity money, more M&A opportunity. There's more of everything in the, in the US. And in order for us to 
really make investors believe that we are going for that vision. We need to pitch more like I would say uh, an American in that in that part of the world, rather than pitch um, like uh, uh, com companies that that are in that are in Europe. That's a very it's, it's a very unusual thing to say, <laughs> but um, the way that I'm I'm thinking about this is. When it comes to the valuations and the and the size of the companies uh, that are coming out of uh, San Fran, for instance, as a stereotypical example, the size of their ideas and the size of the vision of every founders is compatible with the VCs that are out there. There is a correlation between the way a founder pitches and the way that some very famous founders, some companies that haven't gone so well, but yeah, I know you, I know you probably know what I'm talking about, but they all are compatible with the VCs that they raise from. Big picture, big vision, big money, right? Because they want to go that far. I'm not talking about a three to four year journey where you sell at three to 400 million. I'm talking about an eight to 10 year journey when you sell for at least a billion dollars. So I one of the main things I noticed when I was raising the Series A is that you can't really raise a Series A like you're raising, raising a seed round where it's like, okay, this is where I think it could go, but this is what I think is going to happen in the first two to three years. Mm -hmm. I initially took that approach when I was testing out the Series A um, uh, kind of vision um, on, on the first couple of funds. But really, what these big funds want to see is, you know, what are you thinking eight to 10 years down the line? What is the value of your IP going to be worth? I don't care what's going to happen in your next 18 to two months of runway. I want to know what's going to happen in the next eight to 10 years. And um, that whole story around what the IP is going to be valued at once we execute over a longer period of time, that in my mind, it's more compatible with American investors than European ones. But when you get the money, European European investors will definitely throw big checks at you alongside the, the American investors, maybe around Series B. But for Series A, yeah, the whole IP story and and and, and selling the bigger picture rather than what you're going to do in the me the short medium term, that was the biggest difference that I am um, I saw. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I noticed the same thing as well when I came here. I've also noticed, I mean excuse my French, but, you know, in America, it's a lot more sales and marketing and sort of, you know, grand visions. In, in Europe, I find that they're a lot more on the ball when it comes to due diligence, things like deep tech, where you have to be quite technical. I found that there's just a little bit more, um, I don't say caution, but just a little bit more methodical, sort of detailed ways of looking at things versus in America, where it's kind of like, how fast can we go? How big can we go? Sort of the common trope of shoot first and ask questions later, right? Um, but that's kind of the way I've seen it over here as well. Well, yeah, I mean, like um, the thing I love about um, about uh, uh, the USA and, and American investors is that um, their their risk tolerance is certainly higher. And it's the first uh, uh, geo that I heard where, you know, you could raise money based on the amount of users that you have, like a social network of profit. And don't get me wrong, you know, it's a, mu a much higher risk of model, but you know, one of those risks pays off and, you know, you've got, you, you've got, you've got a, a hundred billion dollar company, right? And that only really is coming from the US. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that's why like, just in terms of if you really, really want to go big and I'm talking about like actually want to go big rather than just say you are and then just see what happens. Um, as long as you've got the, the, the story right and you've got a, a good data room. Um, yeah, I think the US is, is the way to go for, for at least your, your, your Series A. Absolutely. Actually, speaking about stories and narratives, I remember when you pitched here in New York City, you created such a, a cohesive narrative around, you know, how you started Audio Mall, where you're going and all those types of things. I think the audience would get a lot from 
how you create a story or a narrative in order to get people to buy into your vision, because sometimes you might not have the early traction or might not have the numbers, but how did you create that narrative and story that really made people feel, people feel like, oh man, we need to get in into audio mob now. We need to support these guys because they're the next sort of unicorn. How did you go about that process? So the way I went about it is I, I've been thinking for long before I started audio mob that I, that I wanted to start a company. And um, the stamps of approval, the credibility that that I got along the way before starting, like, you know, working at Google, working at Facebook, outside of like the tremendous value that I got from working there and learning, you know, the ins and outs of the media ecosystem. Um, one of the key things is that one, investors will listen to you the more traction that you have. And I know, again, might be a bit controversial, but it's true usually founders that i've worked at let's say they're starting a fintech company they've worked at goldman sachs the investors are going to listen to them more than you know if they uh, didn't work in finance at all investors listen to people that graduated from stanford more than under university so it's getting all of these stamps of credibility that um that really helps with that and in terms of crafting the narrative the way that i craft a narrative for an investor is very similar to the way that i crafted a narrative for an engineer at the beginning mm -hmm. i started going to hackathons I didn't want to be, you know, that sales guy that just says, oh, I've got this amazing vision, pitches an engineer, and the engineer is like, okay, how are we going to create this vision? And then what usually happens is that the salesperson will say all this stuff that, and they assume that it's really easy to build. And assumptions is the worst thing to make for when you're talking to an engineer. And I have learned the hard way uh, when I was learning how to do this. And um, not having that, 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 that understanding, that credibility to make that engineer buy into your initial vision. So I taught myself to, to make games and make software and, and actually prototype actual working technology. Don't get me wrong, could never scale to like millions of dollars, let alone hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever. But it was enough to make the engineer understand the vision and that I wasn't you know, just a salesperson that was just trying to spout off like a, a technical dream that I actually put some effort into it. Now, the reason I mentioned that story is I, I use the same thing with the investors. Mention that, you know, the, the, the experience from, um, from Google and Facebook and understanding the flow of money, and I'm talking about hundreds of millions of dollars here within the ecosystem, noticed a gap. There was no audio a component. And then I start bringing in the truth, the fact that, you know, uh, I've got a I've got a PS5 back there, and I always reference that on my on my calls that I'm an actual gamer, and I started making my own games. Now I know making teaching yourself to code and make own games it isn't an easy thing to do. It's another layer of credibility outside of the Google and the Facebook piece. So I mentioned you know I've made I've made my own um, my own games. Then I mention a hobby. I I am a massive massive fan of music. Rather than just saying I'm a fan of music and I am um, you know streamed it into my games, I mention massive gamer. I, uh, and this is all true, I digitized Japanese watercolor artwork to make very relaxing, chilled out art in games, oh. rather than just saying I made games um, um, outside of Google, right? I, I put a bit more detail in there. Then on the music production side of the coin, I could say, yeah, I produce music and I streamed it into the games. No, what I mentioned is that I'm a massive fan of hip hop and jazz music. I like Jay Diller, I like Madlib, and I've been trying to produce this kind of music since I was 14. I'm making chilled out games and I want to stream chilled out music into those games. So it's creating a narrative and adding more description so people actually know like a bit about you. 
And a lot of the time, you know, you get investors that you never would have thought would like Jay Diller or even know who he is. And they're like, oh my God, oh shit, yeah, like uh, I love Jay Diller. And that builds the extra bit of a uh, bit of rapport, right? Uh, and then you mentioned the fact that, you know, you've combined your passions, you're working at Google and Facebook. And again, I'm not trying to blow smoke here, but like the way that I'm, uh, I've crafted the narrative around all of the stamps of credibility, that is what really hooks investors in at the, uh, at the beginning. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not the reason that they invested. You've got to, you know, have the numbers and have the team and whatnot. But um, I have never, ever got a bad review from telling that story, <laughs> to be honest. So, so yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't agree with you more, man. I was very conscious of building credibility as well, because fortunately or unfortunately, depending on what side of the coin you fall on, those things matter. Like I had to go to Berkeley for a certain reason. I had to work at, you know, QuickBooks to get that credibility. Like those things do matter. Mm. Um, they're going to kind of yeah, open yeah. the door for you. But the same thing that happens on the other side, because I, I invest in startups as well, is, you know, you don't mm. want to be a VC that's just sort of, oh, here's a 10000 or here's a $100,000 check, whatever it is, and then you guys figure it out. But when they find out that I've actually worked and launched products, like, I'm like, show me your Figma designs. I'm going to show you where it's right and where it's wrong. Like, show me your Python code. I'm going to call out where you have syntax errors, you know? Then they're like, oh, man, this guy actually knows what he's talking about. And they see you as a value-add partner as opposed to just some schmuck that you know, wants to invest in them, but you're hundred percent right. It's about understanding who you're speaking to and really getting into the weeds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing I forgot to add, right. Is, um, I am not saying, um, uh, this story flippantly I've spoken to, it's gotta be a hundred plus investors, uh, uh, <laughs> to, to really craft that narrative that I know, like, like really hits those keynotes in terms of the, the story. Um, cause you know, the, how they say practice makes perfect. Um, and yeah, everyone will, as long as you approach every part of your pitch in terms of, especially in terms of your introduction as well. So all these different iterations that you make on your deck, make on your introduction as well until, you know, every single time you make an introduction, investors will be like, oh, that is actually a really cool story, which is what happens in nearly every pitch now. Um, as long as you, you know, keep iterating on that um, every time you have a pitch rather than just leaving that and just working on like iterating the financials or whatnot, you'll eventually get there. It's just trial and error, really. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, mm. so many different things that come up as part of this sort of investing startup world. It's so exciting, man, but there's a lot of risk. And I wanted to ask about yeah, like your risk tolerance because the American lifestyle is kind of go hard or go home, right? And, and yeah. other places a bit more conservative. How do you kind of calibrate your risk versus reward for anything you're doing, whether it's your personal life or even your company, like hiring those extra 10 to 15 people, improving your burn rate at your company? How do you calibrate risk versus reward for you right now? And has that changed from when you first started to now? Um, so I would say that the, 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 the amount of risk that we're willing to take hasn't really changed the diligence that we make to mitigating said risks though has so you know we're willing to you know go from 12 to 40 people but in terms of the the way that we prepare for let's say you know economic downturn right we concentrate on covid resistant verticals and we have a whole analysis piece around how we're gonna you know how we're gonna do that uh in terms of ways of uh decreasing burn a lot of companies what they'll do is they will cut people um, we're not doing that here because we need those people to grow. <laughs> so in terms of the way that we that we make cuts, like uh, it's leaning into subsidies from, let's say, the UAE government. It's making sure that we are much more frugal and much more lean in terms of how we um, do everything from the kind of expenses we do to like how we do team events, to travel, uh, making sure that we've got proper budgets, making sure that um, 
the way that we our burn goes up and down, that we at least have um, a certain amount of runway uh, before we even think about raising. The usual VC will mention that, you know, all right, you've got, got six months left, all right, start raising. But if you have six months left and you start raising and that raise takes two to three months, then the VC has a quite a significant advantage in terms of the other uh, rates that they'll give you. So I would say that maybe trust the founder's opinion in terms of how much you need to raise um, or, or how much you need to raise and when to raise it. I would say if you've got 12 months, um, um, you should at least consider raising and you should talk to investors every single week, even if you're not, just to keep, tab keep tabs on them. So, so it's, these, it's, the, it's these things that we um, employ to make sure that we de-risk the company. And um, yeah, I know that any time that um, I want, I can go out and raise and get money because we are taking these steps pretty seriously and watching the runway like a hawk. There's no way in hell that I would ever raise money with six months left in the bank. It just it just wouldn't happen. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, I, we're kind of running out of time here. But one of the things I like to ask people mm. is kind of their origin story. Not that this is a Marvel comic book or anything like that. But uh, <laughs> what did you want to be when you were a kid? What did you think you'd be when you grew up? Because it might be so different to where you are now. What was kind of like your first job when you were a kid that you were like, oh, man, when I grow up, I want to be this? An architect. And um, it's because I was obsessed with Legos and building buildings out of Lego and Connect uh, or whatever you call it. Yeah, I was. I, I really wanted to be an architect when I was uh, that like between the ages of four and like I don't know, like thirteen, fourteen, maybe. Oh wow! I I remember watching uh like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air as a kid, and I was like, man, I want to mm. be like an actor just like him. And then I ended up <laughs> an uncle. Um, who was relatively wealthy and he bought me like a PlayStation 5 or PlayStation 2 at that time, I think. Um, yeah. And I was a gamer much like yourself. And as soon as he got me that, I was like, man, I want to be a banker like this guy. Anyone that can give something to PlayStation is is like hot, hot shit. Excuse my French. Um, but uh, nice, nice. Yeah, I always like to ask that just because you never know where someone started architect, but you ended up being an audio mob as the CEO. It's such an interesting journey, man. Um, but yeah, honestly, I think this has been great. We probably have to do a part two. There's so many things we could dive into, but if people want to reach out to you, find out more about you or about audio mob, what's the best way for, for them to get in touch? Yeah. So just add me on LinkedIn, uh, Christian Facey. I believe there's only two people with my name on LinkedIn. So yeah, Christian Facey on LinkedIn, more than happy to, uh, to chat and, uh, uh, more about, more about the company. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Christian. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Take care. All right, I'm going to end the recording.